we could see the writing on the wall for Dobbs. And we thought, what better time? You know, this is a time our community is really going to need us. And we have the skills, so we need to show up for our community and for our future patients. I was like as angry as I was sad. This is like the worst day of our lives. And the state is really making it awful. The fact is, if somebody wanted to get me, they'd figure out how to do it. I'm not willing to not do my life's work because somebody out there might hurt me. I just don't feel like that would be an authentic way for me to live. As the battle over abortion rights rages across America, lives are at stake. Barriers to reproductive health care access have forced many people to travel long distances and to cross state lines to freedom of choice for their body, for their future, and for ours. You'll hear the stories from the front lines, from those seeking abortion care, and the heroes who helped them along the way, one journey at a time. This is Crossing the Line. Since the Supreme Court overturn of Roe v. Wade in the summer of 2022, pregnant people in America have had to adjust to a new reality, where abortion care access has drastically decreased, Maternal mortality has seen a significant uptick, and over 80% of clinics in 15 states have been forced to permanently close their doors, as CBS News reports. What we're seeing across the country, right, as these abortion bans go into effect, that you can't just go across one state to get an abortion. You're traveling so, so far. And these wait times at abortion clinics are increasing. While the midterm elections impact on reproductive freedom won't be known for months, There are some sparks of hope in surprising places and some fears that restrictions will continue to spread in states with a more conservative electorate. With just days to go until the high stakes midterm elections, abortion is taking center stage. I think those decisions are made between the woman, her family, her daughter and her faith. But before the Supreme Court decision made this state-by-state healthcare landscape so precarious, Dr. Diane Horvath traveled regularly from Maryland to Alabama to provide abortion care services. I was a fly-in doc there, like, for one day a month. Horvath is one of the few doctors in the country who will perform all trimester abortions. I felt really drawn to doing abortions later in pregnancy because I was trained as an OBGYN and... I did later abortions as part of my residency training. The term late term, it's not a particularly precise term. We say later abortion or abortion later in pregnancy, but there's really actually no definition of when that starts because for somebody whose state restricts them at 12 weeks, later abortion for them is 13 or 14 weeks because they have to now travel and go out of state. This doctor's final trip down south was just before the Dobbs decision. It's heartbreaking. My last day with them was the beginning of June. And when I left, one of the people said, so, what, you know, when, when's the next time, Doc? And we both looked at each other and she was like, oh, yeah, there probably won't be a next time. And it just, I cried a lot. So now I think about, like, there's an entire state full of people who need to go elsewhere. Horvath is now focusing her efforts on opening an all-trimester clinic in her home state of Maryland with her co-founder, certified nurse midwife Morgan Nuzo. The two talk about the genesis of their co-venture. I remember probably four or five years ago, sitting at a coffee shop talking about what we wanted to do. We'd always get together and say, you know, our five-year plan is to make a clinic. That was our big, like, audacious dream. 
In 2021, with the shift in the Supreme Court's ideology, they began to think more seriously about that dream. We could see the writing on the wall for Dobbs, and we thought, what better time? You know, this is a time our community is really going to need us, and we have the skills, so we need to show up for our community and for our future patients. There was always a discussion about what would we want a clinic to look like, and what would we want this care to look like. Could we imagine having that collaborative practice between a physician and a midwife, which doesn't happen all that often, certainly not in abortion care. If I have this skill set and these patients don't have any place else to go, how can I not do it? This is my responsibility. When the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade, it effectively created two nations. One, where those whose reproductive freedom belongs to themselves, and another, whose reproductive freedom belongs to a small group of politicians who have effectively appointed themselves as decision makers over our bodies our lives, and our futures. That's Dr. Colleen McNicholas, an abortion provider and the chief medical officer for Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region. She sees a desperate need for clinics and practitioners in the current environment. We're going to be facing a healthcare and public health crisis in this country like we've never seen before, where we have to mass mobilize large volumes of patients to get basic reproductive health care. We're going to start seeing people from further away. We're going to start seeing people at later gestational ages. We're going to start seeing people who are sicker, for whom pregnancy is unsafe. And there's going to be some real consequences to that public health crisis. Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, CEO of Power to Decide, also expresses her concern. This country already has insanely high maternal mortality rates for, you know, a well-resourced nation, the highest of any well-resourced nation. And that is going to worsen without access to safe legal abortion. And we're going to see worsening care for and criminalization of adverse pregnancy outcomes like miscarriages and stillbirths, where providers feel like they can't or unable to intervene when they otherwise would. People are being forced to have procedures later and later in pregnancy, which is increasing the cost for them and also increasing shame and stigma. A contributor to that stigma is the politicization of abortion later in pregnancy. Since the 90s, anti-abortion lawmakers have framed the debate using charged language around partial birth abortion and the idea that babies are being killed after delivery. The reality of abortion in later trimesters is nothing like the rhetoric, as Horvath explains. Literally nobody walks in off the street in the third trimester and says, I'm just really tired of being pregnant, give me an abortion. And I feel like some of the people on the anti-abortion side are just like fantasists about this. That is not what's happening. People run into really extraordinary circumstances. And I'm not just talking about young people who have been raped. I'm not just talking about fetal anomalies. I'm talking about people who now are subject to this web of interlocking restrictions that has pushed people further and further into pregnancy. When they wanted an abortion earlier, and they would have gotten one had they been able to get it without having to take five days off of work and without having to come up with thousands of dollars and without having to find childcare. We as a society decided that that was how we were going to regulate a totally normal health service. And then we wonder why people end up later in pregnancy. Erica Christensen and Garen Marshall understand firsthand the importance of all-term abortion care. The couple faced serious complications trying to have a child. 
Garen and I had decided that we wanted to try to have a kid, and we pretty immediately learned that it would not be the simple hallmark version for us. My first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage at 10 weeks, and a month later I was pregnant again, and that pregnancy seemed typical through the first trimester. And then in the second trimester, we started to learn a lot of different complications. It felt like every appointment, we would learn something new that was atypical with the pregnancy. They started to notice some physical issues with the fetus. At 30 weeks, our doctor deduced that the pregnancy was not going to end the way we had all hoped. Our fetus couldn't swallow. Swallowing is how a fetus practices breathing. No swallowing, no breathing, no life outside my body. We naively weren't aware at the time of abortion laws in New York State. It's a bastion of access and we are a progressive playground and when you need healthcare, you can get it. And then once I had crossed over New York's invisible line of 24 weeks of legal access to abortion, there is treatment for you to be able to get through this as quickly and humanely as possible. However, it's not available in your state. And in fact, the place that we recommend you go is across the country in Colorado. I was like as angry as I was sad. And a lot of that had to do with what felt like such a injustice. This is like the worst day of our lives. And the state is really making it awful. And like, they don't care. The couple's traumatic experience inspired them to start Patient Forward, a group focused on education and advocacy around the harmful impacts of late-term abortion bans. Soon after we got home from our trip to Colorado, I was feeling very sad, so mad, so confused. And I thought... Do people in New York know this? Are other people as ignorant as we were? And do they need to be warned? I just all of a sudden had this deep desire to like call every pregnancy capable person in the state of New York and tell them what our abortion law was. And then we ended up creating sort of the grassroots home for the Reproductive Health Act. It was through this work that they connected with Horvath. In the early days of starting to do advocacy, Dr. Horvath was one of the people who made herself available to us for information. So if we ran into this weird question or something we don't understand or terminology, we could reach out to her and she would like take the time to explain these hard medical things to us over the phone just for our own understanding so we could be better advocates. This is what I love most about what Diane and Morgan are doing. They have talked about patients in the most clear knowledgeable, empathetic way. I mean, this is a radical change from how third trimester care has been discussed and relegated over the many decades. And it's just so refreshing as a patient to see it. I mean, it gives me life. It truly does. It like feeds me to see the way they're doing this. Among the 13 states that have full bans, Texas has an additional roadblock for patients needing abortion care. Doctors and hospitals are unwilling to treat patients with life-threatening issues because it's unclear if they're breaking the law. 
We're hearing from the family of a young woman who is 15 weeks pregnant and has been told her baby will likely not survive the pregnancy. The mother's health is also deteriorating and doctors have told them in this situation, most would choose to terminate the pregnancy. However, under Texas law, that is no longer an option. Families like this are being forced to find care on their own outside of the state. We know the stories of the patients showing up at the emergency room with fetal anomalies. Those are making the news because doctors are so scared to perform abortions that they're sending patients who arrive at the emergency room home until the patient is sick enough where the doctor can't be prosecuted for doing an abortion because it endangered the woman's life. Even though the fetal anomaly has no viability and is already making them sick. That's Reverend Daniel Cantor, senior minister of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas. Before Roe was overturned, his church offered travel services out of state for Texas women seeking abortion care. The big story here is the absence of the patients, and we don't know where they are, and we don't know what they're doing. We don't know if they're going to Mexico. We don't know if they can get themselves to high access states. We don't know if they're taking things into their own hands and using herbs or trying to get abortion pills and having to navigate that alone. Under current Texas state law, Reverend Cantor and his team cannot even advise people on where they might find abortion care. The attorney general in Texas invoked this law from 1925 that said anyone furnishing the means for helping someone with an abortion could be brought into court and we along with our lawyers decided we had to stop. People in Texas who get pregnant are still in need of information about what their options are. Obviously the state is not any help in that. The state has been giving false information about abortion anyway for years. It's trying to restrict all the information we can offer. At the moment, Texas is more than restricting information. They're refusing to release any. The Texas Department of State Health Services announced this month the state's maternal mortality report won't be released this year. We have a 57% maternal mortality rate in Texas right now of patients who arrive at the emergency room with complicated pregnancies. That's more than one in two patients because the doctors have been threatened with imprisonment. Fetal anomalies are a very small portion of all pregnancies, but what we don't know is the 500 a week who would come to our clinic just in need of an average abortion and where they're going and what they're doing. And if you multiply that unknown number by all the clinics in Texas, all the states from Texas to South Carolina, you've got a pretty massive unseen tragedy. For Horvath, these stories reinforce how important their efforts are. I think there's a lack of empathy for all of the people who need abortions. For some people, it's a very wanted pregnancy and they're here because there's something very wrong with a pregnancy, something where they can't stay pregnant. And I think the lack of ability to identify with those people is something that really surprises me. Planned Parenthood's Dr. McNicholas agrees. Our patients don't exist in the world of abortion rhetoric every day. They have regular lives, they go to their regular job, they take care of their regular family, and at some point are faced with the need of accessing abortion. Our biggest challenge right now is trying to figure out how are we going to be ready for that and how are we going to help folks get access to that care while we are also working to fix the system that brought us to this moment. 
But these assaults on reproductive rights are also inspiring a new generation of healthcare providers who see abortion as part of a larger commitment to ensuring equal access to medical care. We now see that folks who are entering medicine are entering it from a lens and commitment to justice, whether that's health equity justice, whether that is racial justice or maternal mortality justice, right? I think people are coming to medicine from a different place now where people are looking to live out purpose and to serve the broader community. The Roe decision left lots of people out, and it certainly set up the evolution that we are seeing today, right, where state after state, restriction after restriction makes it harder, chipping away at abortion access. I think we will face the reality and a real potential opportunity to get rid of that altogether and to build something that does support access to all reproductive and sexual health care, including abortion. For Reverend Cantor... It's all about the long game. We're looking at a 50-year cultural shift around abortion and reproductive justice. It's starting for us with clergy and committed congregations who want to learn and deepen around these issues. And remembering that at every turn, there are clergy who are supporting reproductive dignity in all forms. And that all people of faith are not against abortion. Turning the culture is a long marathon that we're just taking our running shoes out of the box and lacing them up on. So there's hope there. Things will change. But for the short term, very difficult. We're just do what we can for the few who we can help. And that's going to have to be good enough. Population Media Center is excited to announce their next podcast series, The State of Women. This insightful and timely podcast is hosted by TV host and correspondent Kimberly Brooks and stand-up comedian Gina Brion. This series explores which U.S. states are getting gender equity right, which are failing, and what you can do about it. Go to thestateofwomenpod.com to find out more about this relevant series. And subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just after the Dobbs decision came down, Dr. Diane Horvath and certified nurse midwife Morgan Nuzzo were able to start construction on their new clinic in the D.C. metro area, which they've named Partners in Abortion Care. We hired our first employee and started paying ourselves in June, and then we've kind of been on a rocket ship since then trying to get it open and licensed and hire all the people we need and get all the equipment we needed. We have a chief operating officer who is actually one of the nurses we worked with at the last place we worked. and wants to retire, but not quite yet. We've been really lucky in that we've encountered support almost every place we've looked. And I think about how different it is for us than for people trying to start clinics in places that are less supportive. We've been very open with everybody we've talked to, like our contractors that we had come look at the space. Like, okay, well, we're an abortion clinic. We just want to let you know 
And the second contractor that came to see us, actually he and his partner had their own abortion story and shared it with us and said, what you're doing is amazing and I wanna do whatever I can do to help this get going, which was pretty awesome. It's nice to feel like you're in a position where we can make these decisions for our patients mm -hmm. and our staff and like be thoughtful about it and absolutely not just like, well this is five dollars and this is you know 375 so we're going to 375 right like mm -hmm. but you but you know what I say if your staff is happy your patients are happy mm -hmm. okay the, the world according to Kim is always right <laughs> Horvath and Nuso have received incredible support along their journey, from those helping to build the clinic to the remarkable success of a grassroots funding campaign. There's something about this spot that makes people feel very emotional. Diane had a big mm -hmm. oh. emotional reaction right here yesterday, too. Oh. Yet they are painfully aware of the risks they are facing. It should only be exit. exit. It just leads straight out. And this is... Courtyard. Courtyard, okay. So there's nothing that leads back out here or anything. Okay, and then these these windows. We're gonna with um is this the bulletproofing? We haven't put anything on them yet. But, but at some point they're looking yeah. into bulletproof, but according to the National Abortion Federation, threats of violence against abortion providers has doubled in recent years. Rates of arson, attempted bombing, vandalism, stalking hate mail, and internet harassment are also growing. The clinic could become a target of anti-abortionists because they provide abortions later in pregnancy. Now, whether or not something ever happens where my safety is further threatened than it has been, I don't know, I can't predict that that, that will happen or not happen, but I know that what the anti-abortion people want is for me to be so scared that I don't do this. But that's not an option. <laughs> so I'm trying to do all the things I can do to be as safe as possible so that I can continue to do this work because I think it's important work, I think it's moral work, and I think it's necessary. The measures Horvath, Nuzo, and their staff must undertake to stay safe are extensive. We had an anti-doxing service for me and Diane where that basically scrubs our personal information to the internet. We have our security system set up, you know, with our alarms, our cameras, double doors, double locked doors with key cards to get into the clinic. I mean, we're just all hyper aware. The clinic's patient care tech and doula, Amy, appreciates their efforts to keep everyone safe. Our staff has a lot of trauma from former workplaces they've been in. You know, I get out of my car and have to put something to cover my stickers. I look both ways. I've never thought about security in the way I do. So there's a lot of fear and there's so much anger about what's going on. Our community is always on the lookout for people who are doing weird things around the clinic. You know, we had a person on a bicycle who was just kind of hanging out in the courtyard. And that would just be a normal thing if you're an ophthalmologist. But for us, we were like, who is this person? Let's get a picture of this person. So those things are part of our, just our everyday for us, trying to keep the team safe. While the Maryland Clinic offers one solution for the changing focus of abortion care in the U.S., providers in other states have faced more dire consequences. In Shreveport, Louisiana, Kathleen Pittman, clinic administrator at Hope Medical Group for Women, saw firsthand the crippling impact of the overturn. Immediately after the decision in Roe came down, of course we had to pause. 
we were able to obtain a temporary restraining order so we could open the clinic back up. So we were able to actually continue care through the month of July. It was absolutely crazy. At that point in time, we still had people, well, we had numbered up to around 500 at any given day. Not long after, the state doubled down. The Department of Health and Hospitals did issue a cease and desist order, which actually was my 30th anniversary here at the clinic. So that sucked. The case continues. We simply cannot provide care. We did retain our license for now. We had actually just renewed it in the spring. So, you know, we had been hoping perhaps for another reprieve of some sort. I don't know that that's going to happen. While Hope Medical Group's Shreveport location is no longer offering abortions, they are still providing health care. And Pittman has identified a location out of state to offer abortion services. We have found a building. We are waiting to close on it. And then there will be some initial remodel that needs to take place to suit our needs. We're trying to stay as close to Louisiana as possible because our goal is to help as many Louisiana citizens as possible as well as others in nearby states. We are not divulging where we're going just yet because everything's not signed and sealed. Had anybody told me I would be relocating at this stage of my life, I would have laughed. I mean, I'm very close to retirement age and try to maintain some sense of humor and it is heartbreaking for its reasons, but at Hope, we've always looked for humor to to get us through the hard times. So that's what we're doing now. And as many more clinics are closing without the ability or will to relocate elsewhere, one clinic that asks not to be named or their location to be disclosed will at least have their medical equipment and supplies put to good use. It's headed to Partners in Abortion Care. We were connected to the clinic by someone who helps staff abortion clinics. They let us know that the clinic was closing and they were incredibly gracious and lovely. We worked with them to negotiate a price for what they had and set up a friend of the clinic to get a truck, load it up, and then head back up this direction. As a rental truck pulls up beside a nondescript building that sits along a residential street, it's already hot and humid in this picturesque southern town. The heat hits different with the humidity. Garen Marshall of Patient Forward is here to help load up very special cargo for Horvath and Nuzo. How big is the truck? 26 feet. Yeah. And um, hopefully it'll fit everything. <laughs> it's the biggest one they have, so... They were trying to get this equipment and furniture, so I tried to hook them up and set it all up, frankly, so that it would happen without me coming down. But the guy that I had been put in touch with, who was great, got COVID last week, and so I just flew in. Garen and his wife, Erica, wanted to support partners as they pave a new path for abortion care. So Garen stepped up to make sure the move happened smoothly. When we found out that they were starting their own clinic, we were very excited because there's so few providers in the country that provide the care that they're going to provide. Yeah. And then you want these guys, yeah? Yeah, bring those. Okay, cool. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm really just honestly so excited that they are getting very close to open. And I think it's so cool that a bunch of people have like helped fund the clinic. A lot of people put in, you know, five, ten, twenty dollars. And I think that it's a testament to how people think it's important to have these clinics and and have care. While everyone is hopeful for the future of the new clinic, 
Today is still emotionally devastating for the clinic owners here, as they watch their nearly 50-year business come to an end. They seem to take some comfort in the fact that like, the equipment would get a, another life and be able to help people. And the reality is, people that might have been served in this community will now have to travel to places like Maryland to get care. And, you know, it's very possible that someone living a mile away is gonna end up sitting on that table in Maryland. It must be so bittersweet to like see the clinic emptied out. Welcome back to this edition of Kojo in Our Community. Morgan, thank you for joining us. What does it mean to have what you call an anti-oppression approach to your work? That's a great question. So one of the things that we feel is so important to the provision of abortion care moving forward in a post-ops world is to include anti-oppression work as part of the provision of abortion care. For years, reproductive care has had issues with transparency and accountability. Staff are often underpaid and overworked. Harassment, especially in clinics with older doctors, has been an issue. Horvath is firm in her conviction to change these norms. We have been operating in like the repro health, repro justice slash rights world, like in just reproductive care in general, from a scarcity mindset. Instead of what should abortion care look like? What would it be like for a patient to come into a space where they feel truly held in that space? And also just like, what would a great place to work look like? Like, what would it, what would a place that doesn't suck <laughs> look like, you know? Um, what would make an employee feel valued? Kim and Morgan, we've all talked about this a lot and trying to bring that here. Because it's not impossible. We are very, very lucky to be in Maryland. We can start from a place of what should this look like instead of like, what can we scrape out of what we have? Her partner, Nuzo, is equally committed. This is hard work and we ask a lot of our team. We are a three-generation team. Our youngest staff member is 21 and our oldest is 66. We're very proud to have three generations lurking alongside each other and learning from each other. We have folks who are veteran, queer, people who haven't had formalized education in our clinic. And all of these people have skills that I don't have. They are just as valuable as my medical degree and Diane's medical degree. The staff at Partners believe that Horvath and Nuzo are paving a new way for reproductive health care, as patient care tech Amy shares. Diane is just so amazing. When you're around her, you just feel like you matter so much. And the way she does trauma-informed care, she's one of the best people I've ever met. And Morgan's someone I feel like I've known for forever. The staff hiring was so intentional and everyone is so heart-centered and amazing and loving. So we're all like happy to be here and so proud to be doing this work. We also know this time is really, really precious. I don't know how long we'll be able to do this work. I hope forever and that it can someday just be healthcare again and not stigmatized. It's several months later in early October and the falling autumn leaves signal a new season has arrived in the Mid-Atlantic. Yet just days before the new clinic in Maryland is scheduled to open, anti-abortion protesters have papered the community with fake news leaflets about both the owners and the clinic. 
their black and white printed leaflets. They posted them throughout our complex. They've also posted them in the, the local neighborhood for na- our neighbors. They have a picture of myself and Diane on one side, and on the other side of the pamphlet has a really giant picture of a fetus that was stolen from one of the local clinics. I wouldn't do the same to them. You know, I'm not going to put their face on a piece of paper with a stolen fetus. How awful. This was someone's baby that they lost and you are using it for a propaganda campaign? I mean, the end game is to intimidate us and we're not going anywhere. The fact is, like, if somebody wanted to get me, they'd figure out how to do it. I'm not willing to to not do my life's work because somebody out there might hurt me. I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like that would be an authentic way for me to live. Many abortion providers shut down after a Supreme Court ruling this year. But in Maryland, two women are going the other way, opening a clinic in a state where abortion is still legal. Here's NPR's Melissa Block. A moving truck maneuvers up to a brick office complex outside Washington, D.C. Part of not being intimidated is not being silent about what they're doing. The owners have not shied away from sharing their story with the media. It's packed with shrink-wrapped equipment. An ultrasound machine, recovery room chairs, surgical instruments, boxes upon boxes. We're going to come out on the other side of this with a beautiful working clinic that's going to be able to take care of people in the way that people deserve to be taken care of. And also to take care of staff in Mm -hmm. a way that staff deserve to come into a place to work where, you know, you are valued. Various clinics and abortion health care providers across the country have no choice but to find a way to navigate in this new normal. At the Camelback Family Planning Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, Dr. Gabrielle Goodrick is taking it day by day. They have really made it hard to be a physician who provides abortion in Arizona in terms of not being clear about what's legal and what's not, and that trickles down to affect patients. Camelback has been able to keep providing abortion care, but it's becoming exponentially more difficult. There's no funding now through our national organizations for women that get abortions in Arizona. I've lost three staff that have been with me a long time, and now we're down two nurses and two front office. We couldn't really replace them because of all the uncertainty. I never in my wildest dreams thought there would ever be a total ban here, so it was shocking. And it's a horrible feeling. Goodrick is also furious at how most doctors in the state are letting lawyers dictate their decisions. I had a patient last week, 18 weeks with ruptured membranes. No fluid, zero chance of it continuing, very wanted pregnancy. She was told to go home until she gets a fever or starts having pain or excessive bleeding. I said, why aren't the doctors doing something? And the doctor said they couldn't do anything because of the lawyers. She thinks it's time to challenge these laws, which are causing irreparable physical harm. We all should just say, this doesn't apply. These cases where the lawyer says, this might not be medically dangerous enough. I mean, that is the most dangerous situation. I mean, don't you think one or two doctors would have been arrested at some point? So not that I want to be that martyr, but someone's got to do that, you know? will be providing up to the legal limit. Because who makes that medical determination of what is medically safe as a patient? 
On the morning of November 9th came some positive news. The midterm elections, despite reflecting a nationally divided electorate, firmly established most Americans' desire to protect abortion rights, even in conservative states, surprising the pundits. The measure uh, defeated in Kentucky aimed to exclude abortion access from its constitution. So how significant is this defeat? I think this is a huge wake-up call uh, to the anti-abortion movement. This was a big night for people supporting abortion rights in a deep red state like Kentucky. Rejecting this uh, ballot measure suggests that a majority of voters do support abortion rights. Ballot initiatives across the country solidifying reproductive rights were all successful. Voters in California, Michigan, and Vermont approved measures to enshrine abortion rights into their state constitutions. And the midterm results give Dr. Goodrick hope. We're going to have a referendum that will change our constitution in Arizona, hopefully in 2024, and it will be put to a vote. I know that in the long run we'll be doing abortions. I know it. It's just a matter of this kind of rocky time where we have to figure it out. For those on the ground in Michigan, the victory was confirmation of their grassroots hard work paying off. Solidifying abortion rights in the state constitution will protect all pregnant people in need of abortion care. Marie, lead clinic escort from Northland Family Planning, is elated. We had four times as many people voting yesterday as we had at any other election at the precinct I work in. People literally came in and asked, where is the, quote, the abortion amendment on the ballot? Where do I vote for that? So that was exciting. Throughout the day, I got more and more confident. There were students in Ann Arbor and East Lansing waiting in line until two o'clock this morning to vote. Bless their hearts. And my big hope there is that they got a little taste of democracy and that they'll continue to vote, that they'll keep it up. We're excited. We are happy that it passed. We're looking at the other states that passed similar things, Vermont and California. I'm happy about what happened in Kentucky as well. We're ready to move forward. Back in Maryland, with construction on the new all-trimester abortion clinic finally completed, the staff at Partners in Abortion Care are also celebrating. Amy is in charge of the event. We're having a private ceremony recognizing the opening of our clinic and that we're really trying to do something totally different, not just be an abortion clinic providing health care, but a space for people to be and feel whatever they are, whatever they're feeling. We all believe this work is deeply spiritual and really important. The Reverend Dr. Carrie Jackson of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice leads the ceremony. We're claiming protection, We're claiming health, we're claiming joy and peace. There are so few people who have the options available to them, whatever state they live in. And we recognize that all of those things that are happening in this country that are oppressing people's dignity, that they're all interconnected. Each of you, by your presence here today, is being called upon to uphold them and make sure you give some money, too. (laughs) You you ready for your... (laughs) Do offer your love and support to strengthen their work. Horvath and Nuzo couldn't be more proud to create the loving and driven community they know is needed for the future of reproductive health care in this new normal. We built this with the help of all those people that were out there today. And we are all partners together and every single patient that walks through here, all of that love and support and kindness and care and intention, anybody who comes across our doorstep, you are welcome here.
I'm proud of what we put together. I'm hopeful for the first time in a long time. And I hope that we can be a part of building back a better experience for abortion care workers, a better experience for patients, and a better abortion care system. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so proud of us. It's funny to think about wrapping this up because this feels like the beginning. And I am so excited to meet the patients for our future and to meet more people and hear their stories and to learn from our staff and to grow. It just feels like I feel unstoppable. Everything's out of our way now, so we're unstoppable. This concludes the first season of Crossing the Line. While it was an honor for us to profile pregnant people seeking reproductive freedom and the frontline heroes helping them along the way, we would have preferred that this series was not needed. But the reality is, with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, we are in a national health care crisis, where individuals in more than half a country are facing restrictive abortion bans that deny them autonomy over their own bodies. Because these laws both shame and criminalize American citizens for seeking normal medical services, we will continue to bring attention to this cruel reality and amplify the voices of those who are willing to share their stories until we are truly the land of the free. Thank you for listening to Crossing the Line. This podcast was brought to you by Population Media Center. Executive producers are Lisa Caruso and Alex Demenenko. Co-producer is Kathleen Bedoya and associate producer is Dominica Ruelas. This episode is field produced by Lynn Hughes, edited by Bruno Falcon, with production services provided by Pidge Productions. Production coordinating is by June Neely. Impact strategy is led by Charity Twos. And original music is by Valerie Ortiz. Narration is read by Tatiana St. Fard. Special thanks to Dr. Diane Horvath, certified nurse midwife Morgan Nuzzo, and the staff at Partners in Abortion Care. Dr. Colleen McNicholas and Planned Parenthood. Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley and Power to Decide. Erica Christensen, Garen Marshall, and Patient Forward. Reverend Daniel Cantor and the First Unitarian Church of Dallas. Kathleen Pittman and Hope Medical Group for Women. Dr. Gabrielle Goodrick and the Camelback Family Planning Clinic. Lead Clinic Escort Marie and Northland Family Planning. The Reverend Dr. Carrie Jackson and the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. And of course, to all those who shared their stories with us throughout this season. An additional thank you to our partners, Power to Decide, AbortionFinder.org, and Plan C Pills. Check out ctlpod.com for abortion resources and ways to take action. Subscribe and review CTL Pod on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check back for the next season of Crossing the Line.